This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Thursday, time for us to talk about all things municipal. And first, I'd like to extend our condolences to our regular contributor, Karen Stintz, on the death of her dad, Henry Stintz. She spoke of him often here and was a very devoted daughter. Karen, we hope you will find comfort in family and friends. And now, it's time to tune into the town. Well, there's a lot to drill down on. We have the Premier confirming he wants to give Ottawa and Toronto strong mayor powers. John Tory likes the idea. Most city councillors do not. And I can hardly wait to hear what David Crombie thinks. Now, former mayor David Miller opposes it. And remember, he won an election on a promise to reverse the city council's approval of a bridge to the island airport. Well, he argued that it would inevitably lead to jets. So is this deja vu all over again? Now we have a tunnel. And Pierre Poilievre, as you heard in Steve's news, has just announced that if elected, he's bringing jets. What do you think? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, David Crombie, former Mayor of Toronto and former Federal Cabinet Minister and Toronto City Councillor Brad Bradford for Ward 19, The Beaches, East York. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hi, Lib. Hi there. <clears throat> David, let us begin with you. Do you like the idea of strong mayor powers, and would it have helped you do your work? Well, I certainly like the idea of strong mayors, but I don't know that you need to reject the system to get them. Um, But I'm open to it. I I really am. I'm hoping, first of all, that 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 people get the program before they make comment and make decisions on it. We have no... Uh, not very much to go on other than a couple of utterings from the premier and a, bro- and a, bro- a story broken by the star. So I think there needs to be an understanding that when you change the structure of council, you're dealing with a political culture that's been around for a long time and you should use it with care. First of all, then I would I'd make sure that there was some kind of public process by which people could offer their views. Now, I know that that's not as quite as neat as having sort of uh, conversations between political grandees. But on the other hand, the public needs to be heard from. Secondly, it's worthwhile remembering that the current system that's had for many, many years is one which, which encourages consensus building. So the mayor doesn't sit back and say, I've got the power, folks, uh, so, uh, and the muscle, so get out of the road. He has to work hard in order to create the consensus. And consensus ends up giving support from the public. And the third thing I would say uh, is that all things change. And if there needs to be a structure change like that being suggested, then I would hang it on its its value within itself and not some phony argument that you're going to get more housing by doing so. Brad Bradford, one of the critiques of this plan is that it is being sprung 
Uh, it was not mentioned in the provincial election, which we just had, and uh, we're sort of in the midst of a municipal election, and it's uh, Doug Ford kind of strong-arming things. What is that? A, is that a reasonable argument? Well, it's an argument that people are making, and if you look back at the provincial election, you know there was a lot of talk about highways. Uh, there wasn't a lot of talk about the municipal minutia of of council. Um, but that being said, I think if you go out and you talk to a lot of Torontonians, you go to the door, they would probably assume that there was sort of a, a strong mayor system in place, uh, and and people might be surprised to learn that the mayor's vote, uh, you know, is is worth the same today as as every other councillor. They, so, they know that if they listen to this show. <laughs> that's right. If they're tuning in on Thursdays to the municipal panel, they would be aware. But you know, outside of that, I'm not sure how many uh, folks would necessarily understand that important um, distinct nuance. So you know, it wasn't talked about a lot in the campaign. But I, you know, to David's point, I think we need to be open minded to considering this. If there are ways to move the big priorities faster, whether that's housing or transportation or affordability, um, if there are ways to remove some of the roadblocks that impede progress here at City Hall from time to time, then I think we should be open to considering it. I wouldn't anticipate that you know you'd be having a strong mayor approach to every single item that comes before council. We're in the midst of a council meeting today. We're doing 460 items uh, at the conclusion of the term, so you know you, you still want mayors who are consensus builders, uh, but they do have an agenda for the city. There's 3 million folks here in Toronto, uh, and you want to make sure that the mayor who's duly elected in the fall has the ability to drive that agenda. And I think there are specific instances that we can look at at council where there have been challenges to getting some of the big things done. It's not every day. We do a ton of work, but there are those moments where, you know, if if the mayor was able to move an agenda forward, um, we might be able to get more done. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Lauren, what do you think? And do you think uh, people in general, the citizens of this city care? I mean, it depends on the citizens you're talking about. Mm. If they really knew the issues at stake, they might care a little bit more. What I'm seeing from reaction online is a lot of people simply saying, like, why doesn't Doug Ford just do his own thing and leave Toronto alone? Why does he have to keep meddling in Toronto's <laughs> politics? Um, some people are saying it's kind of like a power move. Um, but, but kind I, of a little bit. And my, my opinion on it is that I just haven't seen enough details yet. They've only put out very, like a couple, like, like David was saying, a couple of lines about the actual plan for this super mayor, I'm sorry, strong mayor. A lot of people yeah. online are also saying super mayor because they think it's funny, like a oh, superhero is mayor. Is that like Super Mario? Uh, super- <laughs> <laughs> I like that, though. Uh, but I mean, under what they've said already, the council would have the ability to override the mayor if two-thirds of council yeah. outvoted him. So there's still a safeguard in place. It's not like he has executive orders, like a president or something. Um, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, uh, I have yet to understand how strong mayor powers would actually move things along quicker. And the other thing I have yet to understand is how it would help getting basic services in this city. Yeah, and i that's that was really the part of the point I was trying to make. It's unclear what the purpose of my third point. They're arguing that somehow you're going to get more housing. How that's done, no one can tell you. All right. And so, therefore, it seems to me that that is a move without a purpose. And now, if the purpose is, is that we want to move things more quickly, Brad may be right that there may be a way in which we're going to change, and there should be a way in which you change the procedures on council and even the voting pattern and the, and, and the way in which votes are taken and counted. 
that's it's important to understand. I understand the, the the load that goes on to city council. That should be changed, and it can be changed without changing uh, the, the the powers of the mayor. So, it, I it, to me, I'm I'm, I'm kind of old fashioned about it. I think there should be a public discussion, and not just a couple of uh, thoughts uh, from the, either the premier or someone else, and a shrug from the mayor. That's not enough. Well, okay, uh, uh, Brad, tell me if I'm completely misunderstanding this, because when they say we can use it to build houses, housing, I think for Doug Ford that means probably fancy development, Mm -hmm. but also affordable housing, rooming houses, uh, you know, congregate living. So what I'm thinking, speed it up. Well, when you go into a neighborhood, particularly an older Toronto neighborhood with single family homes, uh, residents oppose and therefore the councillors oppose. And uh, is is that the thought that you can just say, uh, too bad, so sad, we're doing this, it's important? Well, that's it. I mean, there's kind of two buckets of housing there. There's the housing supply challenge that we're facing, less than 1% rental vacancy in the city of Toronto. Uh, no doubt that there's major issues there. Um, but there's also the the supportive and deeply affordable housing conversation and, and things like rooming houses. And uh, I, I'm not sure if it was uh, the Premier's intent to, uh, to necessarily support rooming houses or multi-tenant housing, as we call it. But that's a good example of a really critical vote um, that you know, didn't move forward this term of council because the support on council just wasn't there. And yet when we think about the most vulnerable, when we think about people who really need entry-level housing in the city of Toronto, it often is multi-tenant housing. You know, when I was in university, I lived in one uh, where you've got multiple roommates sharing a kitchen and, and shared facilities. And those are not permitted across the city of Toronto. There are areas where they're, they're permitted, but, but there are many parts of the city where it's not. And it's such an important piece of delivering on an affordable housing agenda. And today, uh, the votes just are not there to move that forward. Well, well, it's because the people who live there already don't don't want them. And and David, you're saying people should have a say. Well, I think at least for any change, it's it's not a minor change. It's a significant change. And maybe we need a significant change and one that's tailored to the purpose. The idea that somehow we should copy the American system, uh, that somehow they have the strong mayor system and they're doing really good things in New York, or Chicago, or Los Angeles, well, they haven't traveled to those places. It'd be automatically changing the structure of council does not give you good government. I'm not saying it's not a reasonable tool to have, but I hate to bring up our my own experience with it. We built more affordable housing in the 1970s, before or since, and under the, under the current rules, co-op housing, non-profit housing, let me take you to St. Lawrence neighborhood. So the idea that you can't do it is, is wrong. The idea that we're not doing it, we should, might want to investigate why we don't, we can't get more people on council uh, following the mayor's lead. And, and I think that is, you know, to, to David's point, it's a question about leadership. And, uh, you know, there, but you have a ward structure where folks are very much accountable and beholden uh, to, to the folks who are electing them. And I, I think as a first term councillor, you know, it's it's hard for people to see, um, you know, the neighbors who don't necessarily live there yet. And especially when we talk about housing conversations, it's there are the people who are there today. But we also have to cast our gaze to the future down the horizon and think about the folks who are not there yet, but would like to be there. 
And so a lot of, you know, this is the supply side of the conversation. When we talk about new housing projects, you know, they are often met with ferocious opposition from, you know, existing stakeholders because change is hard, but leadership is about navigating that change. And, uh, you know, I think when a, when a mayor runs on an agenda and they articulate that at their in, their agenda. Everybody has an opportunity to vote for that or vote against it. And then you want to make sure that you can drive that agenda at City Hall. It is hard to determine, you know, who's going to be elected in all of the 25 big wards now. Um, we do have a mayor, you know, who's reoffering again and uh, has proven to be a consensus builder, working with, with colleagues at, at City Hall, working with the province, working with the federal government. That is definitely the best way to get things done. And that's been how we've done it in Toronto for many, many years. But there are these issues. And I think the challenges and the crises that are facing us today, whether it's housing or affordability or getting people moving, um, you know, you want to make sure that you can push that agenda through City Hall. And this would be another tool that you would have at your disposal. But of course, you're going to start with consensus. And, and again, I think when you're the mayor of 3 million people, uh, that's a big audience. You will, of course, rely on ward councillors for, for that uh, more nuanced approach and feedback from their 120,000 constituents that are in each one of the wards in the city of Toronto. So it's still going to be an important part of the conversation. Um, but again, you know, to Lauren's point, we don't we don't have all the details. We don't have all the information yet. Uh, and, and what this legislation looks like is going to be really important. Here's another thing. You know, um, there was a move. And what was it? A couple of years ago, they were changing the structure of the way certain kinds of developments were approved because uh well, and again, right now, the, the provincial, the, the municipal board can overrule anything. The city can say that building doesn't conform. We don't like it for a whole bunch of reasons and, and the developers can have their way. Uh, so I, I don't know, like, how do you view that in the context of this strong mayor thing and, well, It'll move housing along. I mean, you're right. This is an Ontario thing. The Ontario Municipal Board no longer really has the power to crack down and say this isn't permitted. Um, if the government, if the provincial government is so involved in it, it, it's hard for to say whoever the mayor is in you know four months' time when the election comes, if it's Tory or someone else, how much say they'll actually have in putting forward, you know development, uh, allowing more densification in some neighborhoods, allowing more developments to go forward. It's it, I mean, I don't know if making a strong mayor is going to be enough to actually change any of that if it's not, you know, something needs to happen at the provincial level as well. Um, you know, it's like the municipal um, ministerial zoning orders. Like yeah. you can decide at one level that we don't want this and then, oh, well, yeah. like we can, the province can totally overrule you. So what's even the point? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we if we had a strong mayor who could overrule that. That would be a good thing, I think. Yeah, but could they overrule that? I mean, yeah. we don't know. <laughs> David is laughing. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I think it, it, it seems to be escaping the, the debate so far, not here, but generally in the public, uh, is that somehow um, we're assuming that the only power the mayor has is the power to vote. So therefore, he's somehow uh, contained by the fact that he's got only one vote like all the others. But that's wrong. The, the mayor's power doesn't come from his vote. The mayor's power comes from his ability or her ability to actually create consensus within the community and within the council. That's the job. That's the job. And so the mayor has, there's only one mayor. You show up. I can remember having a little fun with John Sewell, who we were great pals, but we were also great bitter enemies for, on, on a number of things. 
And we used to laugh because every time John would get up to give me hell about something, he would always have to address me as your, your, your worship. <laughs> right. And, and that's a way of explaining that the mayor has a kind of soft power that is very, very useful very, because people understand, they don't know much about the system, but they know about the mayor. And so that the mayor has far more power. In fact, his power comes from all those other things other than his one vote. I mean, yeah, he's got one vote. But and to me, uh, one of the things that I find nutty is that the mayor of Toronto is elected with more of a plurality than any other politician in the entire country, including the prime minister. So, you know, maybe she or he should have some power. Well, that, I I, I, I'd say I'm trying to explain that within the system, yeah. the mayor has enormous power and people are, are people are confining it to the fact that he's got a single vote. That's not the that's not the power of the mayor. The mayor's power is the ability, the opportunity to lead through consensus. And consensus brings you lasting change, not immediate change that comes every election. Go ahead, Brad. Well, I think David's absolutely right. Like, you know, the, the one vote on council is is one part of the equation. But, you know, the soft power, let's call it, of 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 any mayor is is predicated on their ability to wield influence, to build coalitions of support, to reach across the proverbial aisle, uh, to find common ground. Uh, and certainly, you know, I think a lot of people would agree that the mayor there now has been able to do that uh, fairly effectively, both at council and with other levels of government. But you've also, there are examples where you can look at previous administrations where that has not always been the case. Uh, so you're you're only as powerful as, as your ability to actually work with people to get things done. And that's the system as it exists today. And certainly we have accomplished a lot of things. Um, there are, there is more work to be done. And there are moments where, you know, a strong leader, uh, and if you had those sort of strong mayor powers, we might be able to do more. But I don't think that this is necessarily, uh, you know, a huge problem. And I think the bigger opportunity is more autonomy for the city of Toronto, uh, more autonomy yeah. over our decision making, you know, whether we're talking about traffic safety or planning and housing decisions or raising revenue from different tools. Um, when we're opening up the City of Toronto Act, it is an opportunity for us to have all of those conversations with the province. And I think we recognize now the importance of municipalities, of cities in delivering those services that Torontonians depend on. And, it, or you know, not delivering them. Yeah, or not <laughs> uh, which is them. Which is uh, 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 the case a lot. Now, I, I, just looking at the clock, I'd like to turn to <clears throat> this uh, newly released Pierre Poilievre video where he says he would get rid of the gatekeepers and uh, fi on the, those people who chose to buy condos near an airport. Uh, he needs the jets there. Uh, uh, David, what do you think? I mean, it's like deja vu all over again. Well, I, yes, I, I, take, I don't know Pierre Poilievre, um, but it sounds like he wants to be the gatekeeper and he wants all the other gatekeepers gone, uh, which I think is about where he is uh, on the matter on the on the specifics of uh, the waterfront i spent well, i spent my lifetime on the waterfront you were the waterfront I was born for right a by grandier pond and absolutely and i was a, I, I, I worked on it all my life and i'm still doing work on it um, and the great magic of the toronto waterfront like any waterfront really any good waterfront is the mix of uses right it, 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 it's it, it's a it's an opportunity economically socially politically for people to gather doing whatever their endeavor is from from ability to make a living to enjoy themselves etc you have to therefore provide for a tremendous mix of uses 
And if you if you expand the airport, and particularly if you expand for runways, if you expand that airport uh, more than it, it'll just dom- you will have a wonderful airport. Or right, but the problem is you won't have a waterfront that you can live on. And we're out there building housing for thousands and tens of thousands of people. Well, he wants to expand an airport to international size. Get out of here, <laughs> uh, Brad. Well, I think we always have to be cautious when when politicians or leaders present an overly simplified solution to a really difficult challenge. And and David was absolutely right. You got a lot of activity going on down along the waterfront, and the airport is a very important, vital part of that, and it's been there for a long time. But as the city grows and as we intensify, we've introduced different uses, not just residential, but also commercial, also park space, also performing spaces. So these things must be considered in the uh, the continuum of, of all the different uses of our waterfront. And that's what world-class cities do. Uh, you don't want to just have one thing down on the waterfront. We, of course, want to celebrate and have a lot of things down there. So, you know, I, I don't, I uh, haven't seen the, the Twitter video uh, uh, from from Check Mr. It out. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it's very uh, very catchy uh, as he's very good at that stuff. But it's um, you know it, again oversimplified solutions to complicated problems. It's not a way to do government. It's not a way to do policy, uh, and I don't think it's terribly effective. Good for you. Uh, uh, do you think that would turn off a lot of potential Poilievre supporters in Toronto? I mean, it's such a, like last time when it came up, it was such a debate on both sides. You have the people who live along the waterfront and enjoy and love the waterfront. They're like, no, we don't want these loud noises. And, and personally, like, I think there's also things to consider. There's the wildlife. There's the Toronto Islands. There's a lot of, a lot of things to consider that, you know, expanding that runway and having huge jets could, there's filming down there. So much. There are festivals down there. the, The public and private investment in the waterfront in the last 40 years has been immense. And, and, and this guy is so, uh, Poilev is so un, untutored, un, <laughs> ignorant of, of all of that. He skates in, offers a modest thought on land use planning and leaves. I mean, I, this is not a leader. This is a spoiler. Yeah, I don't think that he has the proper context or has really researched this enough to be saying that we could just expand the airport. Obviously, for everyone who lives in downtown Toronto, it would be nice to have an airport much closer than Pearson, but at what cost? Because, you know, like David and Brad both said, it's the waterfront is incredible. It's expanding constantly. It's beautiful. We have so much going on in the Portlands. I don't really know how loud the planes would be and how much pollution they would cause, but I know it's probably more than the planes running right now at Billy Bishop. So mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't want to risk the beautiful waterfront that we're, we've built and are continuing to build up just so that people have a more convenient place to fly out of the Pearson. And it's not only the noise of the plane. All of that is normally what's in the public debate. What the larger expansion of the airport will do is use up more land. You're not going to have the same size airport. You're going to have an expanded airport. What are you going to knock out? The residential? The pleasure craft? I mean, all of those things at the waterfront, that's why you need a, a multitude number of uses and protect the multitude number of uses and not turn it over to one use. Hmm. Uh, I'm looking at the clock again. Maybe we'll go a few minutes over. Uh th- the uh, uh, is I'm, I'm going to say insanity. The insanity <laughs> playing out in Brampton, where uh, for a while Patrick Brown and his supporters didn't show up for meetings. Now his opposition isn't showing up. They have an agenda that that is has over a thousand items on it, and there are no meetings. Uh, Brad, like, what do you think? 
Well, I, I, you know, I'm not overly familiar with Brampton politics or, or their local government because I'm kind of tied up with Beaches East York here in Toronto. But what I will say is city government, local governments uh, do a tremendous amount of heavy lifting. And every month that you're away from that, uh, you know, things are not getting done. Those things piled up and, and they need to be addressed. So this is a job that is all consuming, uh, working with your constituents, residents, working with all the different agencies, voices across the big city uh, and all of the things that need to get get done. And, and you really can't let your foot off the gas. You know, we're, we're approaching 500 items on our agenda here as we wrap up the term. And so it's, it's a full-time job. And the, the idea or notion of being distracted or splitting your time with anything else, I think would make it very difficult to, uh, to get the work done that people elected you to do. So that's my focus. And I'm sure, you know, the folks who are working hard in Brampton, that's their focus as well. But you can see what happens, uh, you know, when you, when you take your eye off the work and, and perhaps dedicate that time and energy somewhere else. How long can this go on? Well, uh, for poor old Brampton, it's been going on for some time, even before Brown. It, it, had, it was a lot of divisions in the previous yeah, oh. couple of councillors in Brampton, so it's almost become part of their political culture. Having said that, it strikes me that, and I don't know Brown particularly well, uh, uh, but uh, I know that on the, on the first couple of things he's done in the first couple of years he was there, uh, he was moving along quite strongly yeah. um, uh, on, 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 a, on a new development, the Heritage Village, uh, which was uh, all, going to use all the new planning and all of that. He, he had a vision for 2040, uh, which he was engaging people and, the pub and, and, uh, and his staff. So it seemed to me he was doing okay. My own view is that, that, and maybe I'm really too old-fashioned about it, but he should have resigned when he ran for the leadership. You know, I mean, I, I, we, we seem to think it's okay to say, I want to do this for you, and I'm going to put in the time and the effort and the energy. So you're saying he shouldn't thing. be running again? No, no, he should have resigned when he ran, ran right. for the leadership. But he's, and, then, he's and, then if he, and if he won the leadership, then he, okay. he's federal. And if he, then if he, if he didn't win the leadership, he can, still, he can still run for mayor. All I'm saying is, and Brad's right, it takes a lot of time and energy to run for the leadership of a federal party when you're supposed to be at the job and you can't just leave it to somebody else without there being harm done. And that's what's happening. Oh, so it's the harm done. Lauren? Uh- yeah, I can't even imagine how many things are not being done because of this kind of stalemate. But I, I just I don't know much about what's going on but there. But just to see yesterday that, you know, a whole council meeting was canceled because half of the councillors just didn't show up. Like, that is late night talk show punchline fodder. Yeah. Like, that is wild to me. Um, I was just very surprised to see that. Like, Brampton's in a bad way. Something needs to happen because, I mean, that's unac- unacceptable. Like, there's so much as, you know, all of our other guests who are politicians have said to do on council. I mean, I don't, they can't afford to just take, be like, no, we're not showing up. Like, for whatever reason, um, that's been going on a while. We'll see how it shakes out. We'll see if people just say a a pox on all their houses. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Finally, uh, the best news of all. Kitty is still free. The cats are safe. The cats. Well, they're not necessarily safe, but their quality of life. Their quality of life has gone up. Right. They they don't have to be leashed. I I mean, I'm sorry. This is the kind oh. of thing I know. And I've talked to some counselors who are very passionate about this. But I don't know, Brad, how do you view that whole little episode? Well, to me, it was a, this was a bit of a solution 
searching for a problem. I knock on doors every Friday in the community. I've been doing that for four years. Nobody's ever told me, you know, we need to get those cats on leashes. Uh, but, you know, I understand that there was uh, some information presented. It was uh, a walk-on motion at committee, and, and you know, local councillors are able to do that. And, and so the notion of leashing cats uh, was brought forward. Uh, fortunately, I think common sense prevailed here, and that recommendation was struck uh, from the record as we went through council. So, you know, you can have an outdoor cat in Toronto, and that's going to be fine. When it comes to our bylaws, we have hundreds of bylaws, and I think all the listeners out there understand that we do, uh, you know, a pretty mediocre at best job of enforcing them. It's it's very challenging adding another one to the books that we wouldn't actually be able to enforce and arguably wouldn't be very helpful. Um, not the best use of our time. It's uh, comes to, that's where you get the expression of herding cats. Yes, I know. With city council is like herding cats. Uh, Lauren, what are the, some of the things that you're looking at next little bit? Oh, I thought you were going to ask me about the cats. I had so much to say. Oh, please, please go. <laughs> um, I was just going to say I'm, I'm so happy that Fluffy can still roam free. But I wanted to point out that that was kind of um, part of a larger modernization yeah. of the animal bylaw. And there are some other really interesting things that went through that um, that did pass. Like now dog owners have 24 hours, apparently, to pick their dog's uh, poop excrement <laughs> up off the ground. Um, there is now a limit apparently, on the number of guinea pigs you can have in your yeah. house, and rabbits, only four. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that people had more than that. And then there's a limit on the number of domestic pigeons on a property, which is 30. And then that can increase during breeding season up to 50 pigeons. So the city of Toronto is like, no, nah, cats can stay off leashes. You can have 50 pigeons in October. But, I mean, you know, I think it's good that the cats aren't on, on leashes. I mean, they're adorable when they are, but they also really enjoy walking around. And I have a lot of friendly neighborhood cats near Trinity Bellwoods that people love. They're really cute. They come up and they purr and they want to get pet. Like, I would really miss them. So, anyways, yeah, I looking forward. Um, lo lots of things going on, but I really wanted to address the cats. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll give the other guys 20 seconds each, starting with Brad Bradford. On cats? Oh, sorry. Not, not, <laughs> no, on, on whatever. What, what's coming up? What's well, it, just, it just occurred to me this could have been fuel for the, the Polyev campaign, like a free the cats. <laughs> Absolutely. And gatekeepers on the cats. I'm glad we didn't do that. Uh, yeah, no, you know, we're obviously I like wrapped, that. <laughs> we're wrapping up council here. Uh, we, we've got another day of work at least. Uh, and then, you know, this is a municipal election year. Um, so believe it or not, you talk to folks, there's an election coming up. They tell you, didn't we just have one with, I'm like, that's the province. But in the fall, we're going to be doing that. So I'll be spending my summer at the doors, talking to neighbors about their priorities, uh, listening and, uh, working hard on, uh, making sure that we can keep making the progress that we've been doing the past couple of years, keep driving that forward into the future. Okay. Well, uh, let's make sure those, uh, garbage cans don't overflow. That's my priority. <laughs> David, last 20 seconds. 20 seconds. I, I spend most of my, a lot of my time now with the with a group of people called the Friends of the Golden Horseshoe, and yeah. we're we're gearing up for the campaign for the municipal campaign, uh, bringing we hope a, a regional approach to uh, some of the decision making in the uh, during the election. Highway, the high four thirteen is one of them. There's others. Okay. All right. Thank you so much. As always, a really fun panel. Lauren O'Neill, David Crombie, and Brad Bradford. Appreciate your time. Thank you so Thanks, much. everyone. Thank Have a you. great day. Thank you. Okay, we're taking a break. And when we come back, inflation. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Inflation has reached a 39-year high at 8.1%. 
last month, according to Statistics Canada. Gas is the biggest reason, and prices at the pump have gone up by 54.7% compared to the same month last year. Now, we are expecting another big drop tomorrow, and some economists say that, in general, the worst is behind us. What do you think, and how are you managing? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Benjamin Tal, Chief Economist for CIBC. Hello, Benjamin. How are you? Fine. How are you? Excellent, thanks. So, is there any evidence yet that these big interest rate hikes, which were meant to tackle inflation, that they are beginning to work? Yes, it's starting. Clearly, you see it in the housing market that is slowing down uh, dramatically, and the housing market uh, enters the CPI, uh, the Consumer Price Index, directly and indirectly. So we are starting to see the impact there, no question about it. But we have to remember one thing. 60%, 60% of that inflation, that 8.1% inflation, is something that the Bank of Canada cannot control. It's coming from outside. It's food prices, it's energy prices, it's supply chain. And as long as you have them in, the spa- in that space, the Bank of Canada is limited in its ability to deal with the situation. Uh, my brother has a theory that uh, when you raise interest rates and the basics go up, that that fuels inflation. Is, is there any evidence of that? No, that's not the case. Uh, you can tell your brother that I will disagree with that. You raise interest rates because you want to slow down the economy. The reason why the Bank of Canada raised the interest rates by 100 basis points is because of the fact that I'm full percent, full percent, yeah. we haven't seen it in generations, is because of the fact that uh, they want to make sure that you and me don't believe and expect that inflation will remain high forever. Namely, their goal is to reduce inflation expectations, to control inflation expectations. Expectations, and that's exactly why they move so aggressively, so aggressively to make sure that we know that they mean business. So it's it's not just the actual inflation where it turns out, but it's the expectation. If we expect that everything's going to go up, then it will. Exactly, it's all about expectations, quite frankly. So if you have. Uh, the Bank of Canada facing two options. One, a recession. The other is a, an increase in inflation expectations. They will take a recession any day. They are willing to take this economy into recessionary territory as long as inflation expectations remain subdued. That's their goal, because they know that if you and I believe that inflation a year from now will be 8 9%, it means that you and I will be asking for 8% increase in our wage, maybe more. That will feed on itself the way it was in the 70s. That's their nightmare. For about 40 years, the Fed in the U.S., the Bank of Canada here, established their reputation as inflation fighters. They are not going to toss it away, so they will do whatever it takes to bring inflation and especially expectations down. Well, people are getting raises, but not 8%. That's exactly it. So our uh, income, actually real income, is going down. We're getting poorer by the day. So if you tell me that uh, inflation will remain at 8%, then you will be more militant asking for this 8%. But if you believe that this 8% will become 4%, 3%, because the Bank of Canada will do whatever it takes, then you are not so militant about it. And that's exactly what the Bank of Canada is hoping. And if you look at the latest numbers, it's starting to work. Inflation expectations in the U.S. are starting to go down. 
Is it uh, inevitable, you think, that uh, we will go into recession? Well, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. But you know what? It's not so important because I think that this recession is not going to be a severe recession. It's not going to be the 91, even the 2008 version, because the labor market is so strong. We know that people consider a recession as two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But I don't see it this way. If you don't have much damage in the labor market, it's not a recession. So I believe that if we are going to see a recession, Really, it will not feel like a recession compared to other ones, given the fact that the labor market will be okay. Well, that that was my next question. I've talked to other economists who were predicting, saying, uh, on average, recessions result in something like eight hundred thousand job losses. Like, what what job loss? People can't find people to work. That's exactly it. So it's a very different cycle. And therefore, I believe that you can call it a recession or not. Quite frankly, it will not feel like one. But uh, clearly, you will see the damage in the uh, the housing market. You can see it in uh, retail sales a little bit. Uh, the consumer will go and slow down a little bit because the housing market is uh, starting to consume more and more money. But overall, it will not be a 91-2008 type recession. And what is happening with the labor market? That's fascinating. A lot of things are happening here. You know, if you look at the share of people that are in low-paying occupations, it went down dramatically during COVID in the labor market. Makes sense because most of the people that lost their jobs were low-paying jobs. We know that. Now, the job market is back to normal. The unemployment rate is back to normal. We cannot find people. The labor market is simply totally back to normal. But the share of low-paying jobs still down. So where are they? Where are they? Are they sitting home watching Netflix? The reality is no. They are actually in the labor market. They are participating. But what I believe happened, and that's very, very interesting, is that COVID changed the labor market. It became much more flexible. What I mean by that is that if before COVID you were in Toronto and you were highly educated, but you couldn't find a job, there was a mismatch. You were basically serving coffee in Starbucks. That's the mismatch that we have seen. Now, you can walk in Alberta. You can walk in uh, BC from your home in Toronto because of virtual. So the market is more flexible. All the jobs, not some, all the jobs that were gained since the beginning of COVID, that's about 800,000, were university-educated jobs. Something big is happening. The market opened up for those people because of the optionality there. So uh, instead of saying that it's uh, uh, people who suddenly got more skills and were able to get better jobs, it's people who had skills but beforehand couldn't get better jobs that are driving Bingo. this. Bingo. That's exactly That's what I'm saying. And the market is open up because of course, because of the technology that was really utilized during COVID. And uh, now there are a lot of people who are saying they don't want to come into work. <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, when you have the bargaining power, and you have the bargaining power, for the first time, labor has the bargaining power, then, uh, yes, uh, companies are willing to compromise. And that's why you say, okay, you know what, come uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, and work from home Monday and Friday, and we know that actually that's a long weekend. That's what people want. So we will compromise on something like that as long as labor has the bargaining power. And so far, that's the, the case. 
Uh, okay. So, uh, before we wrap up, what would you like to leave us with, uh, especially for people who are having a hard time managing with these prices? Yes. So I want you to know that at the end of the day, this is not about inflation. We are not going to see inflation of eight, nine percent a year from now, two years from now. This is not back to the seventies. It's really about the cost of bringing inflation back to two percent. Inflation will be back to two percent, maybe three percent a year or two years from now. That's not the issue. The issue is the cost of doing so, namely higher interest rates. So expect inflation to start moderating, but interest rates will continue to rise. Okay. Benjamin Tal, thank you so much. Interesting. A a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. We're taking another break. And when we come back, you know, some of those Prices have started to moderate a bit, and food prices are moderating, but not where we live. 10% food inflation in Ontario. So we'll be talking to Rose Reisman about uh, how you manage with that. What are some tricks? What are How do you still get some great, delicious, healthy food on your table? When we come back, before we go to break, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Food inflation is a big part of the problem, especially for people on modest and fixed incomes. And they have started to come down across the country, but not so much here in Ontario. Food inflation here is still running at 10%. So how to manage and stretch your budget and still have healthy meals on the table. Uh, I'd like to hear from you if you have tips or you have questions, 416 416- Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and let's go to Rose Reisman, nutritionist, author, and owner of Rose Reisman Catering. Hi, Rose. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm great. Enjoying this weather. <laughs> oh yeah, it's beautiful. So, uh, what are some uh, great summer ideas that yeah. will be easy on the wallet? Well, yeah, and and my concern, Libby, is people do start cutting back on the healthy foods, right? Fruits and vegetables are expensive. I mean, you know, we import a lot, even though we have a lot grown here, but gasoline prices, everything's affecting it. So I tell people immediately, buy in season. That's number one. Um, We don't have a lot of time to be shopping at three or four different stores, so you might look online for where some supermarkets have specials. Also, nothing wrong with frozen. Actually, frozen ends up having more nutrients than fresh. Now, you know, maybe you don't like certain vegetables that are frozen, but you know what? In terms of your pocketbook, this is a great way to go. Um, People are cutting back like 21% on their fresh fruits and vegetables, Libby, today because of the cost. So frozen is, is great. And you know what? Even canned, I never used to enjoy canned, but I looked at the nutrients. They're, they're almost equivalent. Um, some of the fat-soluble vitamins are all there, so nothing wrong with canned. The other thing you want to do is look at generic brands, okay? I, I buy generic brands. They're always as good as the name brands. You'll find, you know, good good prices there. And when it comes time for a chicken, buy one of those rotisserie chickens, like for $12. You can get, like, three meals out of it. And then the other thing is, is, is to try to cook in more volume. So when I make something, I try not to waste anything. I make enough for, uh, maybe two or three more meals during the month. So I freeze it. So 
these little ideas just really help stretch the dollar and you're not wasting food, which which is one of the worst things we could be doing. I, I've got to tell you a little f- funny story, not funny, but apropos uh, the fresh and frozen. Mm-hmm. So the last batch of vegetables I bought, I think it's kind of at the end of their season. I got fresh mm-hmm. peas and I got asparagus. Right. And uh, I've got to tell you, they weren't that hot. They were getting kind of woody. And uh, on the fresh peas, I wanted to make a soup. I did make a soup. It's not bad, but uh, the frozen ones probably would have been better. Would have been better, especially for a soup. I absolutely agree. For a soup, I wouldn't waste your money on that. And and they're so expensive. I mean, you look at certain fruits and vegetables that are so expensive. Now, some of the foods that are staying more stable, I mean, you've got... um, I know broccoli, sweet potatoes, white potatoes um, are staying still pretty stable. So you want to take a look at, you know, maybe building up more on that. Bananas are still pretty stable, but there's not a lot that is today. And my concern is also the the statistics are that one in four people are eating less today or substituting the cheaper ultra-processed foods. And we, we, you know, I beg people still to think of your health no matter what and set a budget. I mean, you know, today, uh, weekly, if you're spending $200, now it's a year ago, it's now $250. That's $2,500 more a year. So I understand people getting concerned. So I think the key is set a budget that feels right for you and your family. Stick to that budget. Try no impulse buying, which can always get you right at the cashier. And, um, and, and buy in bulk if you have to. I mean, I still make great trips and I actually order from Costco. I'll freeze the proteins. It's way cheaper than buying it just at a local supermarket. Freeze the proteins and I'm saving money like that. You might put out more money in front, but in the end you're saving. Yeah, not every, not everyone can do that. There's also an issue of storage space. Right. And, you know, local produce is great, but I have to say there are a lot of things. They're very expensive. If you want, Ontario strawberries. Oh my goodness. They are way more expensive than the stuff that that is transported in from who knows where. Oh yeah. And and Libby, what about those little gorgeous blueberries oh, in the Oh, that's summer? that's a luxury. Oh uh, you my know god. What? It's so ridiculous how expensive I saw that them is. I saw them in my grocery store and I remember I bought them last year yeah. maybe yeah. $12 for a little cartony thing right. or they were nineteen ninety nine. Oh no, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, and, and you just want to make sure every everything is eaten. The other thing is canned fish, canned tuna, canned salmon. Um, you know, you can get it in oil or water. That's always going to cost you less. I mean, you know, look at if we all could, fresh is always fantastic. But we have to watch our dollars right now, and we really have to do a meal plan, double, triple up the recipes so that we don't have waste. The worst thing is buying, uh, uh, you know, like you say, a batch of asparagus and only using six of them for the dinner, and then you look four days later, they're bad. That can kill you. So that's why there I would absolutely use frozen. Now, cooking oils, I don't know if you've looked at that, Libby, 30% increase. Wow. And that brings me then to fast food restaurants and restaurants in general. If you've noticed, the prices are higher in restaurants today. Oh, very high. I find the prices... Really, really high. Like even if you go to just the fast food joints, it's more expensive. So you might say to yourself, I'm going to limit how many times a week I'm going to order in or go out because that's costing you more for sure. Uh, What about uh, things like 
beans, uh, pulses. Yeah. So, so talking about plant-based, I'm happy you brought that up. First of all, the plant-based proteins are actually more expensive than meat today. So that's not a great saving, but I say look at a more vegetarian-based diet during the week. So I still will cook with grains like rice and beans and uh, legumes, lentils. Those are reasonably priced, even though the cans have gone up slightly, but not as much as other foods. So if you can, you know, avoid meat, I mean, red meat is just skyrocketing today. And I thought it, it moderated a little bit from the peak. Yes. Yes, from the peak for sure. But now they actually, another statistic that's interesting is 35% of people are cutting back on red meat, which might be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are they going to? Maybe chicken, but even chickens increased a fair amount and things are starting to slow down. But even cereals, pasta, peanut butter, coffee are all higher priced now. So it is hurting us, but there are ways around it. Um, you know, you still, as I say, to, you know, uh, you know, make some plant-based meals during the week, avoid the plant-based proteins like the, the, you know, the fake chicken fingers. Those are costing you a fair amount today. Um, what else? Um, what are things that people can really do to just take advantage of, of the season? Um, I, I think definitely, I mean, if you can go to some local markets, that's always great. I love to do that. If you're taking a trip up north, go to some local markets, look at the prices, and let's say tomatoes, you know, buy a huge basket of tomatoes. You can store them for a while. You can can them. You can make tomato sauce out of them. So those are the things I love to do. And corn, when corn comes down and it's really fresh, I just shave off the kernels. And you know, Libby, I don't know if you know, you can eat raw corn. There's nothing wrong with eating oh, raw yeah. corn. When it's seasonal, it's delicious. So I shave off the kernels and then I freeze them. And then that's even costing me less than frozen corn in the winter. Wow. Yeah. That's a fair amount of work. Yeah. You know what? It is. But in the end, if you if you strategize and have um, some type of meal plan going forward, that really makes it easier, even though, yes, it does add more work onto your life during the week. But if you're worried about, you know, spending the money or you're finding yourself eating too much junk in your diet, that's, that can be worse for you. What, uh, you know, you have websites and stuff. Are there any particular recipes that have got the most traction lately? Um, I would say, let me see, I'm looking because I do a lot of Instagram at Rose Reisman, and I'd say everybody loves chocolate still. They still go to my chocolate recipes. But today, for instance, I did roasted chickpeas, and we had a huge flood of people responding to that just, you know, as a snack uh, because roasted chickpeas in a package is very, very expensive. So doing that on your own and a lot and of And it, it doesn't take a lot of work. Uh, no, nothing. It's like a little bit of, of oil, salt, and pepper and just put it in the oven. That's it. And if you store them well, you can have them during the week to just add to dishes. So you're adding protein and fiber to your diet, which is great. Um, the other thing is um, rice and grains. I mean, they're still relatively inexpensive, go a long way. So I'll include always a grain, um, rice, quinoa, um, in all of my meals. So I'll always have a side dish or I make the main dish out of using a grain. So then I use very little meat and I've always had this philosophy that you want to, you know, have more of grain and have lesser of the animal protein on your plate at dinner or at lunch. So that's also a way of saving money too. Okay, I'm uh, looking at the clock. We're basically out of time. Anything uh, else you want to leave us with? Um, no, just, you know, keep conscious of your health, Libby. I beg people. 
not to just look at the dollar and buy the chips and buy that that's going to fill you up somewhat, but you know, ultimately lead to other issues. I, I beg people to just take the time. I know it's it's a lot to do now. Look at your supermarkets, buy the foods that are reasonably priced, and and a little bit of meal planning. I mean, the summer we're sort of all winging it because we're on the go and we're barbecuing all the time. But um, you know, fall is just around the corner. I think it's important to start strategizing for family meals and for your kids' meals in terms of saving money and staying healthy. Okay. Thank you, Rose Reisman. It'll be always a pleasure. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, Free For All Friday is coming up tomorrow. If you couldn't get through or you have something else you want to comment on, we can talk then. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.